Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I promised Richard that I would carry on his mission because we both share that we want to take solar mainstream. And I know that there's a lot of things that are going to need to happen. And I believe that if I continue to help people communicate their vision, communicate how they run their companies, communicate with each other better, then I can help make that happen too. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey there, and welcome to episode 46 of Suncast. And I'm your host, Nico Johnson. Today, we'll be spending time with my new friend, Pamela Cargill of Kaolisti Consulting. You should keep listening if you're at all interested in insights into how small companies prepare for growth in solar, solid tools that Pam uses to coach her clients along that path, what it's like leaving corporate to run your own consulting business in the solar industry, especially from a woman's perspective, and about a dozen other insights gleaned from more than an hour that I hung out with Pam in her office overlooking the water in beautiful Alameda, California. Pam, thank you for hosting me there. It was such a good time. She's an often behind-the-scenes yet ever-present force in the California solar market and increasingly beyond. And she cut her teeth more than a decade ago schlepping modules and working on a crew installing solar in the Northeast. She then moved up to several different roles, including marketing and operations teams at Sungevity before stepping out on her own. So she understands a thing or three about companies that scale, common misconceptions therein, and how to frame this conversation. Hey, speaking of which... We would love to know, what are you struggling with these days? What one thing is in your way that you'd like to get help solving? Are there specific areas in your business or in the industry as a whole that you wish you just knew how to do better or where you're getting stuck? Let us know. I love brainstorming these ideas with you. So do Pam and so many other of my colleagues who are joining the ranks as uh, consultants in this industry. We like helping people think through these types of problems. And if I don't know it, I can guarantee you I know someone who can get us some help. So if you'd like to schedule a one-on-one call with me or a meeting, you can do that at www.callnico.com. You can also just shoot me an email or a LinkedIn message, as many of you do. Go over to the website, leave me a voicemail, which is also a fun way to reach me. And that website is www.mysuncast.com. And the email is nico at mysuncast. By the time you hear this, you may already be on a plane to Las Vegas, or perhaps you missed it, but you're finally catching up on episodes, and that's okay too. If you do hear it ahead of Solar Power International, I still have some spots available for interviews. You can still use that callnico.com link to get there, and there are lots of opportunities for us to meet up. One such opportunity is the annual Tweet Up, hosted by my friend Tor Valenza, a.k.a. Solar Fred, and his company, Kite Rocket, which used to be Impress Labs. That's Tuesday, September 12th. 5 to 6.30 p.m. at Flex House, which is booth 6340 at Mandalay Convention. That happens to 
coincide with a bunch of other happy hours. Of course, our friends at Next Tracker who have their happy hour during uh, roughly during that time as well. So hopefully you can make some time to come to the tweet up. If you haven't registered, you can go to bit.ly forward slash SPI tweet up. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash SPI tweet up. And that'll take you to the registration page. I hope to see you there or somewhere along the path. And I do hope that you have a ton of value coming from these and other Suncast episodes. If you do, I'd love that you'd let me know on Twitter or LinkedIn. And please do share it with a friend. That's the number one way that we get exposure and and get found by other people who are looking for this type of content. All right. Thanks again for taking the time to be here. Here we go with this week's episode of Suncast with Pam Cargill. Today on Suncast, we are hanging out with my new friend, Pamela Cargill. Pamela challenges the status quo of just about everything from how we generate energy and lead our teams to strategies for getting to a mature solar industry. She's primarily focused on helping residential solar contractors reach profitability through her programs and services that at the heart really focus on helping people lead and work together more effectively. She's also quite the technology maven and is tracking the solar and clean distributed energy software sector. Hopefully we'll dig into that. She writes about it on her blog and in industry publications. Her blog at KO Listy, where she is the principal, is a featured blog in many industry publications and among the best places that you can find writing on the topic of how to scale or how to grow a residential, in particular, residential solar company. Pam, I can't find anything in your bio that would lead me to believe that you're a novice at something. <laughs> uh, let's see. A novice at making things up on the fly. Mm, How about that? There we go. Well, we'll <laughs> test that theory today on Suncast. Thank you for being with us. No, this is great. I'm so happy to have you here, and I'm hosting you in my office. So good. This is actually Winecast number two on my California tour. Oh, yeah. Do you want to Do you want to talk about what we're Absolutely. Uh, we today? are. Yeah, we are enjoying... Pam, in a previous engagement that we were both uh, involved in, asked if I had a favorite wine. And as you all know, but well, actually, none of you know, my favorite wine is Grenache. Grenache is the varietal that I lean towards. And basically all Rhone styles, but any blend that includes Grenache or any Grenache straight up. And we are enjoying today a Carica Grenache from Clements Hills. It is quite tasty. 2012. Finely structured, offering flavors of red currants, cherries, hibiscus, and even hints of baking spice and bay leaf. This is quite a quaffable wine. I'd say it's pretty excellent. It's pretty excellent. <laughs> Thank and you, I, Pam. Thanks for sharing. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. It's, you know, mi casa y su casa, as they yeah. say. Perfect. Bringing in a little Spanish there. <laughs> All right. Well, I am really thrilled to have once again, uh, and this is going to become more a theme, not less a theme, but... A female leader from the industry who brings a little more sense of grounding, fun, <laughs> ambiance. You laugh. This is great. I mean, we're going we're gonna to have laughs on this show. Oh, you're going to have lots of laughs. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Pam has a long, long history by solar standards. She and I are considered somehow veterans in this industry. It's like dog years. Yeah, it right? is. It really is. It really is. It's how many times on the solar coaster you've actually been around and you got your start not selling 
not running accounting, but turning wrenches, as I recall. Yeah. Is that, is that, is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the first paid gig. So since it's important to differentiate a little bit, the, the first paid gig I had in the industry, I was part-time as an installer mm -hmm. and part-time in the office doing mm -hmm. basically everything else except running the books. Yeah. And this was up in the Northeast, correct? Yes, in Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. You were in Massachusetts before Massachusetts was cool. Yeah, it, I kind of, you know, set the groundwork, I guess. There you go. That's there a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. It was, uh, I think the incentive was around 350 a watt. When I got started in Good 2006. Gracious. Oh, yeah. yeah. But then again, where was the cost of modules and everything else back then? It was... Oh, I can tell you. That was when I got started, and yeah. it was quite high. I was, was paying almost $4 a watt. So we barely were covering the cost mm -hmm. of the modules with that with that incentive at that point. Yeah. But yeah. we got a lot of the innovator adopters, and they were phenomenal people. Just incredible people to work for and work with and to see their homes and to help them go solar. When did you decide that solar was how you were going to spend your career? Oh, it was, it was in 1999. Hmm. And I was, I was dating a man who lived in a very remote part of Massachusetts mm -hmm. on the Western side of the, of the state up in the Hills. Right. And a lot of his, neighbors i guess it's hard to say neighbors everyone lived so far apart but some <laughs> of his neighbors uh they lived off the grid they had no access to electricity except for the electricity they made themselves mm -hmm. and so that was really the first time i got to meet people who lived off the grid and see their homes and see how they lived wow and that changed your life it was really inspiring now that was seven years before you actually got into solar yeah okay yeah. so it that got was, the wheels turning oh it did it got the wheels turning and not too long after that, someone put my first issue of Home Power magazine in my hands. Wow. And and it was it was an issue from, I want to say, it was an earlier issue from 95 or 96. Read it cover to cover, and I said, this is this is it. This totally is the coolest out. thing. Home Power was oh, your new man. comic book. Oh, man. It, yes, <laughs> it was like my issue number one of, of Batman. Seriously. Ooh. I was ready to go. Wow. I was all about it, and so I... Uh, I transferred away from UMass Amherst where I was going to school uh -huh. and and I got into Hampshire College instead which wow. is a liberal arts school where you design your own program of study and I said I want to learn everything about solar energy period full stop that's great and so that's what I did I did independent work you are dyed in the wool oh this big is... time I mean tie-dye t-shirt and Birkenstocks with socks on <laughs> and everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So totally old school. Mm. That's great. Well, there, you know, there aren't, as you well know, there aren't a lot of females in the industry in general. Uh, it's something we're working on. Um, but there's certainly aren't a lot of females uh, on the operations side. Why do you suppose that is? Mm. Because this is construction. Mm -hmm. at, at the end of the day, I mean, the story that I've told about being so excited about solar as a technology and, and seeing, you know, this vision of, how you can power your life in a, in a more friendly way that I think appeals to a lot of people, mm -hmm. but it, you're, it's still, a, it's still a construction project. Mm. So I had to come to grips with the fact that I liked to work with my hands and I liked to solve problems with my hands and build things and tinker with things. And so to me to figure out how to 
you know, what modules and the wiring and what lengths of wiring and how to route it nicely in the, in the charge controller and the batteries and matching the load. To me, that was just lots of little puzzles and it was so much fun. But I think, I think a lot of women get turned off by the construction culture and they're mm -hmm. like, I, I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. I don't know if that's for me. Yeah. She likes to talk with her hands as well. I wish I could video this and, and show <laughs> everyone. So, well, how has being a female in a male-dominated industry challenged your career, uh, and how have you overcome it to carve out a space for yourself, in particular now mm -hmm. where you are seen as an expert and you're training lots of males and females? Yeah, great question. I would say for a while, well, in the really early days, in that time period when I was in school before I got into my first solar job in 2006, mm -hmm. the community was really open. Yeah. And if you wanted to learn, if you were driven, if you were asking questions, then people were willing to teach you. And it didn't matter where you were from or what gender you were or any of that. People were willing to share their knowledge. Do you, think, that, were, do you think that's changed today? I think there's this weird sense of competition now that if you if you know things that that is like your IP mm -hmm. that that's what gives you your edge. Right. And I sometimes see this when when I have a room full of contractors who are competitors. Yeah. And I ask them to talk together about problems they're having in their business just to create that sense of empathy that hey guys you're all experiencing some of the same problems. Some people are like, "Well, I don't want to I don't want to talk about my business and tell other people isn't, how I'm doing wrong or whatever. Isn't it the best though in the middle of a class when someone takes a brave stance and they're willing to talk about something that perhaps the rest of the room thinks is insider trading and then the wall, sort of the wall starts to come down. The oh, other I've guys are like, wait, fall. wait, oh, you guys, <laughs> you guys do the same thing. Oh yeah. Oh wait, that's not a unique idea to our company. Yep. Oh, let's talk about how you do it differently. And <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's just like that. And I, and I think, I mean, going, going back to your, to your question about carving out a space for myself, uh -huh. how, how women are doing that, I think it's just a matter of you have to create alliances with others. Uh, if you're looking at this like it's a one-way ladder and you just got to climb over other people like they're rungs to get to the top, there is no top for you. There's no top. This is, this is a jungle gym where you have to link arms with people and people pull other people up and that ends up pulling other parts of the jungle gym up. So it's kind of like a three-dimensional web of people helping other people. Mm -hmm. And there's no top. There's sort of a, a rounded area where you get more access to sunlight, I guess. I love it. <laughs> the rounded area at the top where you get more access to sunlight. Help me understand what you see as the primary hurdles to growth and scale for the folks that you work with, primarily residential, but perhaps also small commercial installers here in the U.S.? Mm. I'd say the biggest thing, especially that I've been seeing in the last two, maybe three years, has been prioritizing growth over anything else and mm. everything else. Yeah. And, and by growth, you mean like new customers, new areas, new offices? What is, how do you define, how do they typically define growth? So expansion priorities, more bookings, setting really, really, really high goals, mm -hmm. and, and just trying to get as big as possible, as fast as possible. Yeah. Well, perhaps let's set the stage a little. Um, your typical client is how big in 
either revenue dollars or employees or both? Okay. So I'd say the types of contractors I spend the most time with probably have somewhere between 10 to 50 employees. Okay. And, you know, according to the data that the Solar Foundation Solar Census puts out every year, that's the majority of the industry. That's yeah. probably 70 to 80% of the companies in this industry. Yeah, commonly referred to as the long tail. Yeah, small yeah. contractors, as that's I would right. say. Right. Now, how many of those folks would consider themselves specialty contractors in that what they do is solar power versus solar power is a tool in the in the work chest? Mm. That's a good question. Actually, that's one of the things I'm investigating right now with a data service that I'm partnering with. There's actually not a lot of good understanding of whether or not, I mean, most of those companies, according to the Solar Foundation, are spending most of their time on solar-related activities. Uh -huh. But I think that there's very likely another percentage of companies that are just dipping their toes in the water of solar who are already working in other traditional trades, right. electrical, HVAC, roofing. Mm -hmm. You've probably seen a lot of these companies, Joe's Roofing and Solar, right. Joe's HVAC and Solar. Yep. These are This is a growing demographic. Uh -huh. So I'm starting to look into, well, how fast is that demographic growing? Yep. And are they staying? Or are they just doing a couple projects mm -hmm. and getting out saying, nope, forget it. That mm -hmm. was kind of the case five or six or seven years ago. They would do a few projects. They're like, nope, this is too complicated. Forget it. I'll take a look at this later. Yeah. Is there any danger to what I would call the, the sole, uh, sole, only solar contractor in um, other, let's say, more established trades getting into the solar industry? Is it, is it as many assume, uh, not rocket science and fairly easy to bolt solar, solar onto an established contracting business? Or is this something that we're going to continue to see uh, in, in for, you know, for the foreseeable future uh, solar specialists sort of rule the roost. Hmm. And we'll focus for the for the time being on residential solar, but um, I'd love okay, your thoughts yeah, cause, on cause commercial I've, as well. I have I have two different thoughts. So let's start with residential, mm -hmm. and then and then I'll and I'll move and answer this question in commercial. Mm -hmm, sure. In the residential space, I'm seeing, and I'm sure a lot of other folks are seeing that the margins. The margins in residential solar are starting to decrease, yeah. both gross and net. And for the for the pure solar contractors, that means they need to sell even more in order to make up that same revenue goal every year. That's right. And what that's starting to cause is this lead generation issue, mm -hmm. which right now pure solar contractors they only have one product to sell, which is a new PV system. That's right. And then they have to find a completely new customer. So there's no way to get out of that cycle. Mm. And if prices continue to go down and margins continue to go down and you need to sell more, you need to put more leads in the top of that funnel, mm -hmm. um, eventually you're going to run out of people to touch mm. in your area. Certainly if you're constrained by a specific area. Yeah. Right. And therefore it's going to necessitate that you think about expansion and therein lies many of the problems that your customers face. Right? right, right. And I'd say many of the problems that have that have hampered a lot of the larger companies in the industry have uh -huh. been trying to operate over Multiple too large of a of a geog geographic reach uh -huh. and trying to handle too many concurrent customers 
at the same time. From an installation perspective? Right, okay. from an installation perspective. Now, is that something that other non-solar trades are better able to uh, absorb or better able to monetize if they see solar as one tool in the, in the toolkit? Oh yeah, if, so let's say, uh, let, let's say I'm an, I'm an HVAC contractor. Mm -hmm. And I've started adding solar to my book of business. And we're talking about residential still. Yeah, so mm -hmm. we're still talking about residential. So let's just take this hypothetical case study. Sure. So let's say I operate in two counties in, I don't know, like the Sacramento area of California. Yeah. Well, if I've been in business 20 or 30 years, that's it's probably likely that I have several thousand customers that I've worked with, either to do service work yeah. or to do new installations. Right. So if you can go out to those customers who you already have a relationship with and say, now we're doing solar, yep. and even 5% of those respond, you're going to be pretty busy for a while. Right. This is the Vivint Solar model, right? They have thousands and thousands of alarm customers. Right. If you have thousands mm -hmm. of alarm customers. Mm -hmm. um, so the likely, and HVAC is a pretty mature specialty contracting mm -hmm. space now. Yep. So there's... There are companies that run razor sharp operations, mm. operations that would put most companies that are purely doing solar to shame. Mm. And so I, I don't want to go as far as to like put the solar industry on notice, but I want to put a warning out to solar contractors who some of whom have definitely been operating in hair on fire mode for uh -huh. a number of years yeah. that if, better run specialty contractors start adding solar to their business who already have a CRM and have their process all set up and ready to go and have great relationships with their local AHJs and, 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 and. Yeah. It's going to be very difficult for specialty solar companies to compete, especially if they don't have a lot of contracting experience or construction experience. And especially when the inevitable happens, which is the market slows down, some regulation gets pushed back and AHJ decides to institute a restriction that was unforeseen oh, yeah. and you get one, two quarters of, uh, of slowdown mm -hmm. uh, and, and a quarter or two of slowdown and cash, slow, cash crunch can bankrupt a small, uh, you know, 10 employee installer if mm -hmm. that's the only thing they have for, for cash flow. Yeah. And we've, we've seen some, some of what we call the middle market mm -hmm. contractors uh, go out of business in the last half half of a year yeah so um, direct energy solar has exited the market mm -hmm. on the east coast they were operating across several states mm -hmm. just in california we had american solar direct uh -huh. they're uh they were a contractor down in southern california right. up here in up here in northern california we had the solar company mm, right long time company they've been they've been they've been in the business a pretty long time like yeah. like nine or ten years at least yeah and they went out of business and it's so the lesson, the lesson is don't use the word solar or the word direct in your company name. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about on the commercial side? I mean, any, any red flags that the industry at large should be, think, should be looking at and or, you know, even perhaps further, something that the resi and commercial installers could be learning from these existing trades uh, in terms of how to compete, not just from diversifying their product offering, but the way they operate business. Hmm. I'd say with the... Commercial contractors, there's there's an element of 
understanding how you fit into the ecosystem of construction. So I think there are still, there's still a lot of pure commercial and industrial scale solar contractors that are just trying to go out and mow fields on their own. They're just trying to work on their own doing solar. And I don't see enough of them developing relationships with general contractors or other construction companies that are working on bids that could have a solar element. And there's a really robust ecosystem in construction on the commercial scale that relies on contractors knowing each other and working with each other frequently, mm-hmm. especially in bidding situations. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of a lot of specialty solar contractors try to avoid bids, but I why I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. More and more of this market is going. Uh, the commercial market is going to go toward toward bidding and RFPs. Certainly, if you're, I mean, if you're referring to commercial being municipal and schools, the stuff that we saw sort of hit its peak back 2009 to 2012 timeframe in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't see, I mean, certainly private RFPs, if you want to call it that, or, or private bids. The typical s- scenario I see, correct me if you, if you see it differently, is, you know, commercial customer X uh, has a solar proposal in hand and they'll go out and get two or three counter offers, right? And they'll compare. They rarely go out and do a public RFP. I mean, a large company like uh, like Apple or Google or a, a big uh, multi-state uh, conglomerate might issue, again, a larger private RFP where they'll invite 5 to 15 installers uh, to participate. Mm. Do you see a continuation of this sort of public RFP style proliferating in the, in the, in the future? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, that's, so what you're calling into question there is the difference between design build Mm -hmm. and design bid build Mm -hmm. so in design build that's what most commercial solar contractors get that's where you design it you build it you go and acquire the customer on your own it's usually outside of an rfp setting right whereas many rfps are design bid build Mm -hmm. where an engineering firm of some kind Mm -hmm. is contracted by the customer, whoever the customer is. They could be municipal, it could be school district, it could be a corporation. This is what Marvin spends a lot of his time on, right? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Actually, Marvin just wrote an article in the latest Solar Pro magazine on the design bid build process. Mm -hmm. And it was at my poking. So (laughs) I said, I think a lot of people don't understand how this works, but I'm not the best person to write the article on it. Yeah, hat tip to Hammond Engineering. I know, hat tip. It's a great piece, too. Yeah, we'll Um, we'll link to that article for sure. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, But the design, bid, build process is such where, so the customer contracts with some kind of engineering firm. They put together the design. The package, yeah. And the bid package. And then competent construction companies come in and bid on it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a way where you can actually compare real apples to apples. Because everyone has to bid with the same design, yeah. with the same structures. And then the customer can just compare the qualifications of each of the bidding companies and say, okay, who's the lowest qualified bidder as think, opposed to just the lowest bidder. Do you feel like companies like Sun System Technologies up in Sacramento or uh, Quick System Solar down in Southern California are going to become more popular where they're spending the majority of their time and effort focused on being a third-party installer, which can be easily subcontracted for GCs, and doing the O&M on the back end rather than being the full-service one-stop solar shop? 
I think what Sun Systems is doing is really smart. Yeah. It's it's the way it's the way a lot of businesses that work in construction operate. Mm -hmm. They're more diversified. So and we have this huge portfolio of projects and growing out there that were put in somewhere around eight to nine years ago mm-hmm. that were put in with people who were still starting to learn the trade and need work. Suboptimal I mean, design, to say the maybe, least. Maybe, I mean, like sometimes a combination of suboptimal design or a combination of suboptimal workmanship mm-hmm. or uh, experimental racking or modules that didn't stand the test of time or some combination right right yeah you can make an entire business out of replacing certain solar module companies who will remain nameless nameless. yeah (laughs) just replacing (laughs) projects that had those panels installed you can give them an additional 20 percent boost off the top right or buy all those projects and then just switch out the modules. exactly but that i think is going to be a huge and growing part of this business completely agree yeah and i'd say both on the commercial side and on the residential side. Yeah. So yeah. as some of these larger national scale companies are restructuring or have gone out of business or, you know, just left, all these customers are out there and they're going to have questions. They're going to need help. Yeah. I have a buddy who was recently telling me about a project portfolio they bought for pennies on the dollar from a developer who had reached the seven year flip. They were ready to get out of the asset. Mm. Um, Company in, in in you know company B where my buddy works has a, a maintenance division so they know how to take care of these assets and they bought it for pennies on the dollar. They literally went in and just did some restringing of the arrays, juiced the arrays by about ten percent in mm. production, uh, just some minor modifications to the um, to the balance of system. Not even changed. They changed out a few modules that were underperforming. They financed it on a five year lease, fifteen years life left. On the mm. asset, they got ten years of juice on the back end. I mean, it's a no—it's a no-brainer. Like it's the most profitable deal one could imagine. So I think a lot of and that's wow. What am I doing doing this? I'm, I know. I'm taking off this microphone. <laughs> I'm going to go do that. <laughs> hey, and it's you know they're learning. They're learning from what's happening in Europe. The same thing is happening in Europe right now. I mean, there's oh, a yeah. lot of that's sub- been going on in Europe for mm-hmm. years. For years. Now. But then yep. they, you know, if you look over at Europe, you can see what this industry could look like. Yeah. There are a lot of options. Obviously, the regulatory landscape is mm-hmm. super different. But I think O&M, or I should just say service, quite yeah, plainly. Yeah, services, that's right. Service is the future. Mm-hmm. Service is something you can do all the time. The thing is, most solar companies are not geared towards service. Mm, They're yeah, geared right. toward new installations. You wouldn't believe this. I just had a conversation two hours ago with someone who I asked them about their O&M contracts, their, their, their service contracts, we'll call it. Mm. And he said, uh, we don't have any. I'm like, <laughs> I go, well, what do you mean? And, you know, what's, oh, was, that's painful. We were running a model, and I said, so what's your O&M contract price, and then what's your assumed annual escalator for that O&M contract? And he's like, well, nothing. Like, let's put it at zero. I'm like, well, what do you charge for a truckle? And he's like, well, we charge 160, whether there's 1,000 screws or 100 screws. I'm like, how does that make any sense for you? He goes, well, you know, we got projects that have been installed for eight years, and we haven't sent anyone out at all. And I'm thinking... One of your competitors is going to eat your lunch. They're already out there. Yeah. They're already out at that site. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So mm. that's one of the things I feel like we have to help this the, the long tail understand about the asset, the asset that they're placing into service that has a 25-year life that despite the fact that it has no moving parts, there's 
there's revenue still left in, in, there's still juice left in that system, you know, not just the electrical juice. There's still monetation left mm -hmm. in that asset. Yeah, and I'd say the lesson for a lot of small contractors is definitely how they can add service to their business. Mm -hmm. And at a time when they've mostly oriented their business, their process, and their hires to dealing with new PV installations. Mm, yep. And the biggest challenge that I've dealt with, and I dealt with this at Cosmos Solar, the first contractor right. I worked for back in 2006. We, we did thermal, new PV. We did PV um, maintenance mm -hmm. for off-grid systems. And we did maintenance on thermal systems. Wow. And those are all very different businesses to run. Yeah. And you can do it, but you have to have, you have to have the right people on staff. Yeah. You have to be responsive to the repair calls for the service work. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, oh, well, yeah, we'll get to it when we're done with our new PV project this week or right. what have you. Mm -hmm. no, you, you have, have to, to be dedicated. responsive. Yeah. And a lot of people look at it like it's a loss leader. Whereas, right. I mean, actually, they're spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on marketing that's, that's not getting them customers. I was just about to say. And they have a customer calling them that has a system that, will, oh my goodness, this is like, this is not brain surgery. Yeah, potentially the best <laughs> marketing dollars you'll ever spend are, are, your, are in your service contracts. Right. And yeah. I'll tell you what, I can't even tell you how many times I got that customer because if I wasn't out on the road, doing an install or getting a glycol bath myself, mm -hmm. I was in the office and I was the first person that people would talk to when they mm -hmm. called in. Yep. And I loved talking to these people and we would often end up fixing their thermal system if they mm -hmm. had that and then upselling them on a brand new PV system too. Imagine that. Imagine yeah. that. <laughs> it was, you know, it's- And you answered the phone. Just, which is problem number one, I think, at most solar companies. Yeah, and you know, it's really tough for, for small contractors because again, you know, I mean, what was my story? I'm out in the, I'm out in the field half the time, mm -hmm. I'm in the office half the time, and I would, I'd get back at two o'clock in the afternoon, the first thing I'd check the messages, start calling people back right away, and yeah. doing yeah. my follow-ups, and you know, if I could be in the office more often, I was able to. Well, Pam, let's play a game I like to call hot or not. Ooh, I like games. Yeah. Okay. So I'll name a specific market or a topic. You spend 30 to 60 seconds on whether you think it's hot or not. Okay. Lukewarm is a totally respectable answer. Yours will obviously uh, be more focused on the, the residential sector. So we'll start there, and I'll start with the topic of residential energy storage. Mm. Hot or not? Well, I'm going to say it's not. Ooh. And and I know I know this is incredibly contrarian and very controversial because I want to differentiate the difference between hot and hype. Mm. So I think there's a lot of excitement around energy storage, but if you look at the numbers, there aren't really a lot of energy storage systems, residential storage systems being installed. That's not to say that it's not going to be a big market, that it's not going to be the next big thing. It's a matter of when. There are so many questions right mm. now. A lot of people want to run straight toward the financial proposition, but I'd say right now, it's just, it's just not that hot of a thing. Hmm. Hype. I like that. I might change this to hotter hype. Hotter hype. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about hotter hype? Electrification of the automobile industry. Hmm. I'd say hype 
Mm -hmm. right now. And I'd say that because I'm sitting here in the center of the Bay Area. It seems right. like every third car that passes me on the road while I'm riding my bicycle, which is not electrified, is a Tesla, a Nissan Leaf, or a Chevy Volt. Mm -hmm. But you get 100 miles out of the blast radius of the Bay Area, <laughs> and you just you don't even see a Prius yeah. anymore. Well, I can tell you, and, and being from a, uh, a state which, I can't remember what they call them, like California and... Uh, the most of the West Coast are these states where they have these requirements. What do they call those states? Um, it's basically they have a minimum uh, requirement. Are you talking you about the cafe to, standards? Maybe for it's fuel, cafe, fuel yeah. economy. Yeah, well, it's where certain states require that manufacturers sell a certain percentage of electric cars. Oh. Man, they have these mandates, right? So California is a mandate state, mm -hmm. and uh, North Carolina, where I live, is not. And it is nigh near impossible <laughs> to buy an electric car let alone to see one uh it, it, like no one you'd cares. have to like gray market it in from another i have to go to georgia though. or dc to find a you know any any sort of a uh, a bulk uh, and not even bulk if i want to find a lot that has more than one electric car on it I have to, mm. that isn't already spoken for i have to go to you know another state so i'd say again much like stationary energy mm -hmm. storage electric cars are motive energy storage mm -hmm. and all of this is it's coming. It's a really exciting future to imagine, but I, I'm always stepping between the visionary world of what is exciting and how awesome and amazing the future could be, powered by solar, driving around in solar-powered electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. That sounds so cool. But when I talk to contractors and I talk about how can you increase your profits today, right. I, have to be, I have to get straight back down into putting my feet on the ground and yeah. saying, okay, but this is what's real now. Yeah, well, This is what you can do now. Well, let's talk about something that I think is pretty real now. What about software as a service startups focused on the solar space? Hmm. Hot or not? Hot from whose perspective? You tell me. Okay. I would say, I would say very hot. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say it's very hot because I think, I think there's this, there's been this perception. I actually did a really interesting um, presentation on this maybe a month or two ago for the Clean Web SF meetup, where I did a, I did a timeline of solar software adoption across the history of the industry, going back to pen and paper all the way to fancy VC-funded and DOE-backed projects that are happening now, uh -huh. and. What's really interesting to see is somewhere around 2009-2010, the, the rise in cloud-based tools to help people run their business went through the roof, and it was entirely following along the continuum of the rise of third-party ownership. Mm -hmm. And many, many of the, so there's kind of two different types of tools there. There's the design stuff, and then there's the stuff to run your business. Yeah. A lot of the stuff to run your business was really looking at trying to move high volumes of customers through at any given time. Right. Which So this is ERP and back office yeah, or just CRM stuff? It's it's a little like that cluster of technology. Mm -hmm. CRM, ERP, project management tools, things like that. And it was all predicated on the assumption that solar companies should be large companies that are moving thousands of customers at a time. Hmm. Whereas I really believe and I'm starting to see much more that this industry should look no different than HVAC 
which has half a million small contractors nationwide. Wow. And all of the software solutions for HVAC are all about moving a few customers at a time through with high levels of precision. Mm. And that's really the type of software that this industry now needs the most. Uh-huh. It needs tools that help manage customer information and project information, not in large volumes, but at the, for the right amount for small contractors. Mm-hmm. Have you found someone offering that type of a service right now? Is anyone, is anyone nailing it? I'm starting to look at a few solutions that I think uh, have a lot of potential. Things like uh, Method CRM uh-huh. or Job Nimbus, which mm-hmm. is really popular in, in roofing. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at things like Sunbase, which came out of the, uh, the fellow who started it, came out of looking at what was, what was being successful in other contracting sectors. Okay. But I have this theory of like a three-legged stool. Uh-huh. Uh, and if I'm, if I'm going on too long. No, just, no, keep going. Okay. So I have this three-legged stool theory of what a contractor needs out of software. They basically need three legs. They need accounting, they need a CRM, and they need scheduling and dispatch. So those are the three legs. And on the top of the stool, the seat of the stool is a design tool that helps automate a lot of the routine elements of integrating the components you need for your design. All of these systems have to integrate and talk to each other. They can do it through the design tool, mm-hmm. or they can have APIs or other types of interfaces mm-hmm. that go back and forth. But if you're, notice I didn't say a separate proposal environment right. or anything like that, yeah, and yeah. that's how everything's set up right now. Yeah. You can't do project level profitability analysis, and you can't know if a job that you did, that you finished, versus what you estimated was right, unless you can compare them, and these tools don't talk to each other Right, now. they're not in the same environment. Right. So it's accounting, CRM, and? Scheduling dispatch. Scheduling, got it, okay. With hmm. a design as the seat of the stool. Yeah, so what I don't see there, as you pointed out, is proposal generation, which to date is you know something that um, is the the top of the funnel sort of freemium offer for a lot of SaaS is the ability to create a quick proposal. Uh, and I don't see anything around finance. Are you seeing how, uh, let's just pick on energy tool base for a moment because they're the, the, the soup du jour in the solar, uh, in especially residential space right now. Are they suffering from not having scheduling and dispatch and accounting? They don't have design either, but they have a quick API with Helioscope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're, they're primarily a bill analysis and CRM tool, and, 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 or rather, it's probably more like a bill analysis and a proposal tool. Yeah. Yeah. So by that standard, they have none of the three legs of the stool. So I don't want to pick too much on any one company or another, but, sure. but if, I, if I step back from the perspective of looking at the businesses that solar contractors are running and how they're interacting with their customers and what is really driving customers to adopt solar. Yeah. Customers aren't adopting solar because they read through an 18-page cash flow analysis and come to a logical understanding that they're going to have a better IRR if they get solar. Mm-hmm. And, and third-party ownership introduced this thinking into the industry because they were selling a commodified product. They mm-hmm. were selling kilowatt hours. 
that was the only way that you could make it make sense. Yeah. You had to couch it like an investment because you weren't selling a thing. Mm-hmm. So the way we sold solar before that was to listen to what the customer cared about and what was driving them to consider solar mm-hmm. and help frame the value proposition to meet that question and yeah. that inquiry process. Yeah. Whatever it was, whether it was sticking it to the utility or it was being energy independent or being green or fighting climate change or prepping for doomsday, don't care yeah. what it was. They can have whatever reason they want for going solar and I will help them meet that goal. Yeah. But fundamentally, it sounds like you have a different perspective on the value of selling a kilowatt hour versus selling the freedom of solar. But the thing that has created the scale, arguably, in the United States that we appreciate right now is selling it as a, uh, a commodified, financeable asset. It was zero down. Just zero down. Period. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Now, I, I, the company I worked for mm-hmm. made it through the end of, of 2008 going into 2009 because as the housing market collapsed, uh-huh. We were in the process of bringing in Sunrun to Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And that was what kept us alive, was we started selling Sunrun deals. We started, and I had to figure out, okay, how are we going to change the story of solar? When up until now, it's all been about this like custom listening, talking about the value of certain modules or, or its efficiency or product kind of conversation. Right. And now we had to just talk about, it's zero down. You have to pay anything up front. It's such a good deal. Can you believe this? But it's not as though the engineering changed. Like, the engineering of a system didn't change. Nope. And, uh, I mean, I would argue that the roofing industry and the HVAC industry don't customize the the product to the customer. They're still selling on uh, on a similar metric. right? I mean, surely the HVAC industry isn't selling on... Uh, amount of air blown into the house. No, you know what they're selling on? I'd love to know. Comfort. They have mastered, They have the best HVAC companies out there have mastered understanding how to tap into people's primal feeling for wanting to be comfortable in their home. Hmm. What do we have in solar that's even remotely analogous to that? We're still talking about kilowatt hours and all this tech gobbledygook. Who cares? Who cares? The customer knows what matters to them. We haven't found that comfort analogy mm-hmm. for them. We keep going to these logical, rational places, like we're data from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. We're like, hmm, it must be logical. It has to be totally logical. It's not. It, like the reason, the reason people buy things, especially high-ticket items, is not because of some kind of logical process. That's how they rationalize it. Hmm. I don't know that I totally agree with that. Okay, um, we can have a little bit of disagreement here. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I mean, I think on the on the commercial side in particular, I don't think that. Um, I would agree with you on the commercial side. Yeah, it's not an emotional decision. Yeah, it's like, is it going to pay back in five years or not? Or less, <laughs> <laughs> or two, or three. Yeah, <laughs> but but on the residential side, mm-hmm. it, I, I I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the construct and certainly the the counterpoint that other industries. I mean, certainly roofing. Look, roofing is not selling uh, on uh, on a commodity. They're selling on security, right? Absolutely. In the same way that alarm system companies are, right? 
And uh, it's interesting to hear the thought that uh, HVAC, uh, or the notion that HVAC sells on comfort. I've never sold uh, HVAC nor bought it, so I can't comment there. But I wonder, and I challenge the community to think about, what is it about solar that is our comfort cell or our security cell? Some would say that it's security against energy uh, price in increases. I mean, certainly when I got into solar in 2006, that's exactly what we sold. We sold a hedge against your rising utility bills. Right. And right? we could then, because we did not have the threat of NEM changing right. and utility rate increases, minimum bills and mm -hmm. fixed charges, which we're dealing with now in every single state all over the country yeah. in multiple utility jurisdictions. Yeah, interesting. This is all from SaaS startups. We in, in Hot or Not, we somehow spiraled <laughs> spiraled. Wow, into we went this, way uh, down a rat hole we here, did. man. That's fine. That's fine. That's <laughs> quite all right. But sound off, community. I'd love to know what you think about this topic in particular. What is our uh, cooling and security conversation around mm -hmm. solar? Or is this, in fact, a commodity? What do you guys think? Well, we'll move on to the next one, Hot or Not, the so-called national huge sort of uh, multi-state installation company a la Vivint or SolarCity or Sunrun, these finance companies that dwindle everything down to uh, a kilowatt hour and make logical, <laughs> rational decisions. Is that hot or not? Uh, I'd say at this point, it's, it's not so hot. It definitely had its moment in the sun, and I think for a very good reason, just like I laid out earlier, the zero down offer was mm -hmm. very clever and definitely drove a lot of interest right. and drove and did drive sales. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, next, utility scale, or the, sorry, the utility relationship with distributed generation, hot or not? On fire, <laughs> totally on fire right now. This is, just like I was saying a minute ago, probably the biggest existential threat we're dealing with right now in distributed generation is this evolving relationship between the utility and with the vendor space, the contractors mm. who are installing rooftop solar or solar on top of a small business or right. anywhere else behind the meter. The valuation schemes are being challenged. And, it, and this goes back to the long conversation we were just having, mm. which is with all this challenge going on, can we still continue to talk about solar just in the rational terms of savings. Mm -hmm. And and I'd say if I was to, uh, if I was perhaps to leave you with anything further to kind of noodle on about this, it would be look at what's happening in the space where utilities are changing, the cost of solar, the challenges we're having in terms of increasing levels of adoption. We have an industry that's growing at a slower rate now. How do we get over this? We have two ears, one mouth, we have to use them in proportion, we have to actually listen to mm. what consumers want and orient our businesses to fit that need. How does an installer typically approach you or how are you brought in to help them? Mm. I would say it usually starts with uh, some kind of burning question that they have about their business. Mm -hmm. Like, we've been growing for X number of years, but it seems like we're just not as profitable as we used to be. Mm -hmm. we're, having, we're having trouble growing. We're having trouble keeping our customers happy. There's usually some key question of something going wrong. Yeah. And where, where typically do you see them in their growth curve? Like how many years in or like when they hit a certain number of installs or a certain number of employees? Is there a telltale sign? I would say... 
I start to hear from companies once they have at least 10 employees mm. because there's sort of there's sort of these plateaus and I, I've totally I've been through all of this. So the so when I started with Cosmos Solar, I was employee number two. When we got to be about 10 employees out of that office, things started getting a little different. Mm -hmm. Suddenly. There's new HR procedures mm -hmm. and there's sexual harassment training and all this stuff starts happening. There's manage there's a new manager that comes in. Right. And then when you get to somewhere around, somewhere between 25 and 50, there's another plateau that happens uh -huh. where, whoa, now you've got maybe two crews. Yeah, and you've got people don't even know each other's names. Yeah, and then by the time you get up to, if you get up to 120, that's when you really start to get to the point where you're like, I don't actually know everybody who works here anymore. Yeah, okay. So I'd say I try to find companies that are in between that 10 to 50 space yeah. that are grappling with how do we run a good organization? How can we work better together? How can we make a more profitable company that we're all having more fun being part of? Yeah. Less hair on fire. Once you get up to 120 mm -hmm. and, and above, that's a very different animal. Yeah, different it's a organization. very different. And I've and I've worked for companies mm -hmm. that were, I mean, I, I worked for Sungevity for two and a half years. Right. And I was very involved with process streamlining and launching new software there mm. and breaking down silos of communication. It's hard. Mm -hmm. That's that's a different political animal to work with. Give me an example of the introduction of a framework that really catapulted a client, like where you were able to see a step change in their growth because you introduced a way to think about or, or functionally improve their business operations? Mm, yes. I would say there are... There are a lot of tactical ways that you can move the lever on mm -hmm. changing process, but the most powerful one that I use is helping the business owners coalesce around why they're in business. So this is like classic Simon Sinek, yeah. start with why. Yeah. You have to get people to start with why. Uh -huh. And I usually have a small room of the key stakeholders in the business, either the business owners or key executives, and I have them each write down why the company exists. And of course, I get a different answer from every single person. Right, yeah. And so helping them together understand collectively, creating that sense of why they're in business, translating that into how they do that, mm -hmm. and then what they do, that mm -hmm. changes an organization. Yeah. Because then they can share that with their employees. Yeah. And they can use that as a guidepost to help them make any kind of decision they want in their organization. Does yeah. that meet with why we're in business? No, then we're not doing it. Right. It gives them a filter. I guess I'm a cynic because I feel like a lot of folks ought to already be, I mean, if they're reading and they're leading a company, they ought to already be thinking this way. Am I wrong? That a lot of people, a lot of people go straight to what they're doing. Mm. I install PV systems. Wow. That's not why you're in business. Yeah. That's well, not why. Right. Okay. That's not why you're sitting here running Suncast. Mm -hmm. You know, you, why am I sitting here? Running why Suncast? are you sitting here running Suncast? <laughs> you know, think about that. Yeah. It's oh, it's like it's like a it's a powerful thought thought exercise. Yeah, it's for you, my peoples. I'm sitting here for you. How, <laughs> well, how do you help their teams improve? I mean, this is one of the things that uh, is a part of your byline, right? That you help them, you know, functionally improve the way their teams lead and work together more effectively. How, mm -hmm. how do you do that? What are some strategies that you approach that? Uh, you know, perhaps someone may never have the opportunity to work directly with you, but 
through this conversation they could learn from you and, and maybe who knows it would spark a conversation with someone on the back end of this mm. so one of the things I really enjoy doing is being in put, or putting together a workshop environment mm -hmm. where people can learn the skills to work together with their teams yeah and one of one of the most popular workshops I do right now is called the soft cost treasure hunt. Okay. And that's it's a, it's a setting where you iteratively, iteratively go through a process of trying to improve a case study business on your own. Mm -hmm. Then you do it with in a small team environment uh -huh. where your one person role plays the owner of the business, everyone else role plays different employees, and then you all work together on brainstorming and figuring out ways to improve the business. How interesting. And then the next iteration of that is layering on the risk analysis portion of mm -hmm. saying, okay, you came up with all these ideas and then you argued over which ones you thought were best. So basically the loudest person at the table got their way. Mm -hmm. Now what happens when you weigh each of these ideas versus who is it going to affect the most mm -hmm. in a negative way? When you start getting people at the table to look at other people in the company that they may not work with every day, but who are also part of the process. You start looking at them like human beings who also need to get something done. Mm. It really changes the way people look at the problem. And this is something I see a lot. You can, you can look at a process and you can you know, move things around and say, oh, this should happen before this and that and the other thing, but which is exactly, that's, that's my, um, for those of you who are listening along at home, I'm, I'm pointing at my- Since you can't watch my, the video, we're looking around her office. <laughs> I'm, I'm pointing at my, my poster from 2014 that I did for PV America and Solar Power International on- Fan using, favorite, by the way. Using the seven, I, it's got my little blue ribbons up there. Using the seven forms of waste and critical path method to lower soft costs in residential solar. And- these are great techniques to use. Do your customers' eyes glaze over when you mention that? I don't mention this. Mm -mm. No. You just walk them backwards into it. I walk them backwards into it <laughs> because you don't need to tell people about, you know, the seven forms of waste are transport, inventory, motion, waiting, overproduction, overprocessing, defects, boring. Who cares? I agree. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> but when you let, when you have them experience in that setting what it's like mm. to try to solve a problem on their own mm -hmm. and then try to argue through solving it with others and then have a framework for how to work with others to solve it in a way that is then a positive outcome for everyone that is a positive learning environment and i've had a lot of people go away from that workshop saying i never thought of running a brainstorming session with my company i thought it'd be a waste of time i don't think it would be a waste of time now is there anything that you think particular holds companies back from either growing from that 10 employee to 50 or uh, perhaps what I think a lot of folks are, are, are dealing with in today's environment, growing beyond residential into commercial sales? What's holding them back? Yeah. I would say one of the things that's holding them back is not taking the time to plan for it. Mm. And just sort of tripping into it. We got a new lead, and so and so we're just going to we go. go for it. Yeah. And I mean, there's. Mm. Let me qualify this a little bit because I think there's some value in, say, 
you have a customer, residential customer, you did a great job, and then they say to you, hey, would you guys be able to put solar on my business? Do you right, do that also? Or... Oh my God, say yes. For sure, yeah, yeah. Say yes. Say yes and get to, get to figuring it out. Yeah. Say yes, but then make a plan. Yeah. And that was how that was how Cosmo Solar mm-hmm. got into small commercial. Yeah. Was we we started getting leads from homeowners we did business with who were small business owners mm-hmm. who said, "Do you also do it on businesses?" And so we started to spec it out. And the way that we we did it was with our subcontracted electrician who was working with us a lot, very regularly on projects. We had we contracted a couple hours of his time to help us with the site walk down. Yeah. So we could a site form, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we could basically look at the service entrance and you know, because we hadn't You're not missing the key pieces, right? So we're yeah. not like, what the heck are we even looking at here? Right. I don't mm. know. Yeah. So do you feel like a lot of small installers just they actually, what perhaps what's holding them back is a uh, is a good templates and good tools to be able to introduce them to the best practices of the industry as they expand. I don't know if it's necessarily. I don't know if there are necessarily best practices mm-hmm. right now. I'd say we're we're still at a point where hmm. the best practices that got us here are not the ones that are going to get us there. Oh, I completely agree with you. Mm-hmm. I just heard a, uh, an installer I was in, on a call with last week said asked me for feedback on what I'm seeing other installers doing from the perspective of a commercial solar site walk. Yeah. And I'm like, whatever they're doing, don't do that. (laughs) And he's still doing, frankly, what I was doing in 2009, right? Eight years on. And, you know, the best in class are doing stuff that most solar installers can't really fathom right now, which is, you know, a guy drives up with a printer in his tool, in his backpack and he walks into the CFO's office while another guy flies a drone over the building. And when he's finished with the conversation with the CFO, the drone guy comes in, they download the software, they generate a proposal on the, on the fly based on the data they download from the drone's two gigabyte hard drive or mm-hmm. you know thumb drive. And so they do a point map. I mean, just yeah. immediately they have proposal, accurate point maps uh, des- design uh, done within, all done within an hour. And then what? Do they think they're going to close it on the spot? With a financing proposal, no, but they have, but they, I can tell you, they're moving a lot faster than 99% of their competition. Interesting. And that is... But I want to know who's closing deals. Yeah. Because this is, this is the issue that we're having right now. People are really concerned with velocity mm-hmm. and not quality. Mm. And How do you fix that? How do you meld the two worlds of velocity and quality? Because one of the problems with being able to get to profitability is velocity. You can't, I mean, especially if you're dealing with commercials projects. In in the world of commercial sales, mm-hmm. there's, there's no urgency mm-hmm. except the urgency that you manufacture. And there's no trust except for the trust that you manufacture. And I, these things take time. I think the same is true in residential. Yeah, but I'd say it's even more so with, with a business. There are, there are usually many, well, not always many layers, but there are sometimes more decision makers and more levels of decision makers mm-hmm. that you need to engage with in order to get That's a project absolutely through. absolutely true. So you can, you know, get a meeting with the CFO and mm-hmm. put a proposal there, but now the CFO needs to schedule a meeting with the CEO and the COO and mm-hmm. they need to look at it. And then, and then, board and then there's some kind, and then they need to bring it in front of the board and then something else catches fire in the business, and mm-hmm. now the solar thing goes down the list in priority. Yep. 
And the world, the world of selling in commercial, mm-hmm. I'm seeing is so much more about: Do you actually have a relationship there or not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have tried to boil it down to the uh, canvassing the canvassing of residential solar Mm -hmm. that drove growth in residential solar for a couple years under Vivint. Mm -hmm. And commercial solar is not sold by canvassing. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not. You don't reach the decision maker that way. No, you don't reach the decision maker. Not even the facilities manager in most cases. No, you don't. You don't reach anyone that way. It's like it just takes time. And I think a lot of people, especially residential contractors who are trying to get into small commercial, they they don't make enough consideration for the longer cycle times of the sale yeah it takes so much longer Mm -hmm. you know you can hey sometimes you can you can close you know a a homeowner right on the spot Mm -hmm. right then that's right and have the project done in 30 days and you're done but that's not really gonna happen almost never happening commercial i'll tell you another pitfall that i see is a lack of consideration beforehand on how a residential solar team will be compensated on commercial deals. Oh, and, yeah. And so what happens when Bob comes in and Bob closed a 200 kilowatt, forget that, Bob closed a 50 kilowatt deal and the average residential deal is five, right? Mm-hmm. So you got Bob now making 10X what his peers are making. And what do you think his peers are all thinking? They're like, dude, I how do go I get, get a piece of that? I gotta go get a commercial deal. Not realizing that Bob just spent 45 days nurturing that relationship to get that deal in front of the board. And that was an exaggerated case because his sister's brother's mother knows. Yeah, knew someone on the yeah, board. Yeah, sister, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just connected that to his actual mother. But, <laughs> but you know, he actually was able to accelerate the process. And then all of a sudden, out of a five-person sales team, three of the sales guys go off, and they're going to now become commercial sales guys. And where you had a five-person sales team closing 15, 20 deals a month, all of a sudden you dwindle down to 10 or 8 because they're all wasting their time on these longer lead times. Yeah, they're all chasing projects. they're chasing whales. And they're not telling management that that's what they're doing, but they're doing it because they're following the money. Mm. Because they can make way more money and so get more notoriety. The, where's the sales manager here having the weekly meeting doing pipeline reviews? That's mm-hmm. what I want. That's the first thing I would ask. Mm. Is okay, this is sales ops 100 level. Yeah. If if you're not doing pipeline analysis, if you and if you have your incentives set up so that they're incentivizing the wrong behavior then people are are going to go to where they're incentivized Mm -hmm. if you're using the same commission structure for residential sales in the one to ten kilowatt range Mm -hmm. as you are for small commercial deals in the ten to one hundred kilowatt range you are going to have problems that's absolutely right you're gonna have problems you're gonna have cash flow problems you're you're gonna lose people because Mm -hmm. they're not gonna realize it takes six months to twelve months to close to close a commercial deal that's just that's just how it is Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Can software help? Mm, I don't think software can help people make their mind up faster. No, I agree with that. But yeah. one of the things that certainly in sales sort of 100 point B uh, is the implementation of CRM, which we don't often see. Okay, in some CRM. Of <laughs> I, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally say I, I see so many poorly implemented versions of CRMs, whether it's Salesforce, Zoho, mm-hmm. or something completely different. It's great to have a CRM, but that's like that's like step 0.1. It's still Gigo. Yeah. Garbage in. Garbage, garbage in, out. garbage out. So you have to have rules around how you use it. Uh-huh. You have to set it up in a way that it's actually 
friendly yeah. to use mm -hmm. for the person who's low, using low the friction, low friction. Is this something that you work on with your clients? Uh, I w I've actually started working on ensuring that they have the process set up correctly, right? That they understand the customer journey, that they understand the customer journey and, and that they understand the user experience mm -hmm. that everyone touching the system needs to have. Yeah. And then I bring in an implementation partner that actually does the heavy lifting yeah. on the implementation. I wish every solar manager learned agile development, like just the principles of agile development, understanding to even the notion of customer journey, user experience, how to develop a process around the customer experience. And, right, and which means understanding the customer experience. Mm -hmm. Going back to the two years, one mouth thing, mm -hmm. We've yeah. been very focused in this industry on talking about the message we have and pr and talking our language. Mm. And we need to spend more time listening to what are the things that turns turns the table for the customer? Mm -hmm. What what makes them care? What makes them move or get to the next step? Mm -hmm. And that's the customer journey. It's whatever whatever's getting them to move. What are some key lessons or takeaways from the key mentors in your life? Hmm. I would say someone, someone whose life journey that I, there are two people, two really big kind of public figures whose lives I've really admired. One of them was Julia Child. Mm -hmm. And Julia Child brought f the beauty of slowing down and enjoying French cooking and fine wine to America at a time when convenience foods were on a rapid rise. Hmm. And at a time when television was becoming a bold new medium. And I've read several books now on the life of Julia Child, just trying to understand what was it like to try to communicate this completely revolutionary message to really challenge the status quo of industrialized convenience food at a time when America was in turmoil and civil rights was happening mm. and feminism was on the rise and television was changing the way people consumed information. And the biggest lesson learned for me there was Julia really understood her why. Mm -hmm. She really understood why she was doing it. She loved to eat and drink and, and she, she loved food. I mean, look at us, we're sitting here, wine cast number two, enjoying, you know, Enjoying a Grenache. I mean, this this really this really is very much about who I am. Yeah, it's visceral. It's a, it's visceral. It's um, and what I learned from Julia's life was she didn't she didn't endorse any products. She didn't sell herself. She was very focused on her mission, mm -hmm. and she really cared deeply about helping people understand and learn. And she really understood the customer journey. If you look at her books, her cookbooks that she wrote, that she spent years and years and years of her life writing, if you look at her television shows mm -hmm. that still to this day you can watch and are still fresh and the techniques are still fresh, mm -hmm. I mean, she pioneered food television. Yeah. She also understood the science not only of the cooking, but as you said, of the convincing. Yes, absolutely. So, so I think... There's a lot. There's a lot there that really inspired me mm. and still inspires me to this day. The other person who really inspired me a lot was Richard Perez, who was the founder of Home Power Magazine. Ah. And 
I, I did get to meet Richard. I met him uh, a few years ago, finally, and Richard's goal was to make solar mainstream. Hmm. And that's why he started Home Power Magazine, because he wanted to create a place where you could get information to help you understand how to put together photovoltaic systems at your own home yourself. That's revolutionary. Mm. And the community that Richard pulled together around him created Home Power, the Home Power Magazine Empire, which again also spun off Solar Pro Magazine, which is the top technical hands-on journal for solar professionals to help yeah, them with their absolutely. technical skills. And Richard was also very involved with starting the energy fairs, which were these in-person gatherings that happened at all these different points all over the country where people who wanted to learn how to do solar themselves got together. That's where I came into the community. I want to meet this guy. Richard passed away. Yeah, I still want to meet him. This is hands down the best answer anybody's ever given for this question. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Phenomenal. So um, I promised Richard that I would carry on his mission mm. because we both share that mission that we want to take solar mainstream. Mm. And I know that there's a lot of things that are going to need to happen. And I believe that if I continue to help people communicate their vision, communicate how they run their companies, communicate with each other better, then, then I, can, I can help make that happen, too. Phenomenal. Well, what's got you excited right now for solar in the United States? What's next? I would say probably seeing more traditional tradesmen add solar to their business. Mm -hmm. That there are hundreds of thousands of them all over the U.S. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm not saying this to um, to dismiss the solar contractors, the right. specialty solar contractors who are involved now, because I think they're always going to have a role. Mm -hmm. But I see that if, if we're really going to take solar mainstream, rooftop solar, then we need hundreds and thousands of small local contractors right. who can offer solar to their communities. Right, right. I mean, the roofing... The HVAC industries are not built on the backs of nationwide contractors. Exactly, They're exactly. Not. So I, I see that there's a lot of opportunity and there may be, there's there's been a healthy back and forth between electrical contractors and uh -huh. the solar industry yeah. for a while, but I see that there's a lot of opportunity for those businesses to cross over, to work with each other, mm -hmm. for more alliances to get built across all mm -hmm. of the trades yep. across general construction, subbing down mm -hmm. into good quality specialty solar contractors. And I think the more the solar industry can continue to embrace that it is construction and contracting and, and operate like that and talk like that and not call themselves installers but say, yes, I'm a contractor. Yes, I work in construction and I'm proud of it. I think the more we're going to see us continue to move into that mm. mainstream space. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, f I was talking to my neighbors who's a handyman, and I, it opened for me this whole new world of uh, potential for hybrid business models. He said, I don't want to touch and to touch an electrician's job. I don't want to invade on his space, mm. but I'd really like to add solar. Like, this is just Legos. Like, this is not rocket science. 
putting a tor putting a screw into the roof, making sure that it's water fast. Like I do much more difficult things on my job than that. And mm-hmm. he's he's a contractor. He's a bit more than a handyman. I mean, he builds stuff for a living. Uh, and he looks at solar as like just a bolt-on accessory to a home. And frankly, like he's mostly right. And we're getting there w- too. Yeah, exactly. And I'd wonder what happens. I mean, I'd love to see this world where a an ecosystem arrives for outsourcing the mechanical labor to local guys like my neighbor Matthew who would be more than happy to take a few hundred dollars to go and put the panels on the roof. Doesn't want to touch the electrical. He certainly doesn't want to have the engineering crew on staff to engineer it. But there's got to be an ecosystem that surrounds that that allows that instead of getting instead of going and shopping day labor, you are able to hire local qualified, you know, I'll call them handymen, but you know, uh, contractors who provide just multi-service to mm-hmm. the housing community. Right? Yeah, and I definitely see that that's, that's going to be a powerful space mm. in the future. Our, I, and actually, I have, a, I have a graphic that shows this. It's sort of the customer in the middle, mm. and then it has all the different home services clustered around them. Mm. And, and I, think, I think that we will see a future where contractors who own the customer relationship and have already developed a good customer relationship mm-hmm. will continue to offer new products and services. And the funny thing, I'm on the floor at InterSolar two weeks ago, right? And I'm talking to a friend of mine and a guy comes up and they're chatting and we introduce each other and he's a small contractor. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, um, so I told him what I did and so he asked my opinion. He said, uh, so I just had a customer ask me if I would help them with a remodel. Mm. And I said, did you say yes? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I thought about it. And then I said, yes. I said, next time, just say yes. Right. I said, what licenses do you have? He's like, oh, I've got General B and I've got this. He starts like listing off right. all, all the his li- qualifications. Like, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> time out, time out, time out. Don't talk yourself out of projects. Right. You have the customer. Yeah. How else are you going to lower your cost of acquisition? Right, right, exactly. If you continue to go back and perform new products, give new products, mm-hmm. perform new services for that same customer. Yeah. They're going to become even happier with your work. Next thing you know, when their friends are all sitting around having dinner together, having a backyard barbecue, they're going to yep. say, hey, I'm thinking about doing a remodel or I'm thinking about solar. Oh, my God, you should work with such and such. He right. did such a look what he did. Absolutely. Just point at my house. You know, that's, no that's I think, what's, what's going to get solar into the mainstream mm. is having it more integrated into the rest of the construction and contracting trade. Very interesting. You are definitely a prolific reader. We've talked a number of times about uh, yes. the books that influence your thought process. Is there any book that you've given away the most, and why does that influence you, that book? Mm. So I pulled down a book from my, um, from my bookshelf, mm-hmm. and it's called Implementing Value Pricing, ah. A Radical Business Model for Professional Firms <laughs> by Ronald J. Baker. Now, before we keep going, is this a book that you actually gift to people? Yes. <laughs> I have and, and Nico's laughing it. because because this book this is, a, this is, is probably thick. about an inch thick. Oh, more. Or more. This is <laughs> at least six hundred pages. Okay, yeah, it's it's a it's it's um it's a three hundred and forty oh, page book. Yeah. And I've given it both to friends and colleagues of mine who work mm. in the professional services side of the industry, but I've also recommended it to contractors because this book helps set a case for getting out of the race to the bottom and properly valuing your services. Wow. 
And I know for years now, there's been this race to sell solar for lower and lower dollars per watt. And I realize that SunShot very much put this goal in front of mm -hmm. everyone saying, we should be selling solar at you know, $2 a watt or whatever it is, some ridiculously low price. But as a contractor, you should be free to sell solar for whatever price you can get it for. I love it. And, Absolutely. and as long as you can justify the value to mm -hmm. the customer and follow through on it. Yeah. If you sell a high priced PV system to a customer, you better be providing a premium service to them. Yeah. Like hands down, you better have the most airtight process. You better have the best customer experience. White glove. You better white glove the heck out of that project. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, you cannot provide, you cannot charge a premium yeah. for your service. Absolutely. Well said. So the book is called Implementing Value Pricing by Ronald J. Baker. Subtitle is A Radical Business Model for Professional Firms. Yeah. And so I want to I want to say this is this is written for people who are you know doing consulting or accounting sure. or whatever but the lessons in it mm -hmm. are very much applicable to contractors very cool. to help them understand that you you don't just need to offer the lowest price because if you if you're selling a commodity mm -hmm. there's always going to be someone who can who can charge lower rates than you if you want to build a long-term relationship with a customer and offer them other products and services later you cannot you cannot compete on price. Mm, very cool. Any other uh, books of note that have uh, particularly influenced the way you do business? Um, I would say. You mentioned Simon Sinek. Yeah, I've, yeah. I was trying to think of the Lean book before that, but uh -huh. um, Simon Sinek start with why. Mm. That's a great one. That's uh, that's definitely something I think, especially owners of solar contracting businesses, should read. They should really figure out how to articulate why they're doing what they're doing yeah. so they can run a great organization. Uh, another book that's really influenced my thinking has been Good to Great, Jim Collins. Oh, right. Jim Collins, yeah. of course. Yeah. And that was actually recommended to me by a colleague of mine at Sungevity who I, who I really respected a lot. He was the director of field operations. Oh, right. Who's that? Um, his name was Ben Young. Ben, yeah. Yeah. And Ben actually uh, left Sungevity and went and moved back to Utah and actually went to work for Vivint Smart Home, strangely enough. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, ben, Ben's great. But I asked Ben the same question that you asked me. Yeah. Which is, Ben, what are the books mm -hmm. that have really shaped and influenced the way you are as a leader? Because I really respected his leadership style. I like the way style. you said that. And he said, good to great. And he also recommended a bunch of Patrick Lancioni's books. Uh, right. Like Death by Meeting. I'm trying to remember some of his other books. But anyway, they're, they're all great because they're these stories that are wrapped up in a parable about how to run a business. And, you know, we're creatures that are habituated by stories. So, and I'd especially say that um, Patrick's books are especially good for contractors because hmm. they're shorter and they help you kind of in the same way that I do the experiential education on how to, right. how to learn concepts. These Patrick's books help you read in a similar way through the stories of how businesses work and learn how to manage teams. Yeah. 
The one book that the one that I was introduced to was called The Advantage: Why Organizational Health Trumps Everything Else in Business. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And then the one that he's most probably most known for is the Five Dysfunctions of a Team, oh. a leadership <laughs> fable, and that's where you you've obviously had a chance to read his storytelling style. Yeah, yeah, I highly yeah. recommend those books as well. They're very very good. I'll make sure we include those in the show notes. Well, as we wrap up, I'd love to hear what one thing do you do consistently that yields the greatest impact or results in your personal or professional life? I would say it's continuing to focus on people and relationships. Mm. And I think that's something that people see about me mm-hmm. continually as no matter what I'm doing, I always set aside a percentage of my time to volunteer for the causes in the industry that I care most about. Mm-hmm. Whether that's lobbying on the Hill in DC to tell our congresspersons and senators to continue to support solar, solar policies, or to help SIA better understand how to serve small contractors, to help CalSIA be more successful, to help Oregon build its solar market, to help grid alternatives be more successful. I've, I've always, I've always believed that this industry is about people and it's about creating longstanding relationships. And most of the people I do business with, I do business with because we like each other, mm. because we, we connect to the same sense of why. Mm-hmm. We believe that we're part of something bigger, that we're not just here making money, that we really care. We care deeply. And when we connect to each other based on values, there's so much more we get done. Mm. And Amen. Yeah. Yeah, that's um that's that's definitely something that drives me. Amazing. Well, where can people find more about you? You've mentioned your blog before. Can you do me a favor and spell mm. Kaolisti and www. Kaolisti, so that's uh-huh. C H A O L Y S T I dot com. com. Yep. Perfect. And are you Kaolisti as well on Twitter? Kaolist at uh-huh. Twitter. So uh, that's no the e. it's like Chaos Analyst. Yeah, the Kaolist. Perfect. And <laughs> I certainly see you a lot in my Twitter. Uh, LinkedIn feed. I don't know how others are optimized around wonderful content, but thankfully mine does. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very active on LinkedIn. Mm. Uh, most of the content that I post is stories about what's happening in small local areas all over the U.S., mm. interesting solar controversies or policies or what's happening with a contractor. And yep. I use that to illustrate a point about what's happening to the growth and change of the solar industry overall. Yeah, if I could automate the, the act of auto-sharing your LinkedIn content, I would probably rise in the algorithm somehow. <laughs> <laughs> That's sweet of you. <laughs> well, let's end today with a bold prediction. Pam, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Hmm. I would say it's definitely the traditional tradesmen mm-hmm. and how they are interacting with the solar industry. Yeah. I'd say there are some people who are really involved with that, like Aaron Nitzkin, for instance, with Solar Roof Dynamics. Mm-hmm. He's helping roofers add solar to their business. For sure. But I'd say he's more the exception than the rule. Wow. And I'm pretty excited about the prospect of seeing 
hundreds of thousands of solar contractors serving their local communities all over the U.S., just like any other trade. Absolutely. And so. I think that's really the, what the future of this industry is going to be. Mm. So the more we can optimize how we're creating our products and services so we can help small contractors all over the U.S., the more we're going to see this industry grow and actually become a mainstream market. I love it. So a mature solar industry is, in, in reality, a convergence upon the other trades already ex in existence. Well, as that becomes reality, we will certainly talk about it more here on Suncast. Pamela Cargill, I am overjoyed to have an opportunity to sit down with you in your beautiful waterfront office here in Alameda, have some amazing wine, and wax prophetic about what might happen in the solar industry. Thank you for your time. This is great. I'm really glad you finally came. It's great to see you. I don't get mm -hmm. to see you very often. It's wonderful to have you here. We'll have to change that. And if you guys want to reach out to Pamela, you can certainly do so through the ways that she mentioned here or reach out to me, and I'm more than happy to put you in touch with her. Have a phenomenal afternoon. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.